Motherhood is Murder contains graphic and explicit content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to episode six of Motherhood is Murder. My name is Valerie Cation. And we are hot off the trails of Easter. It was a really beautiful weekend, really nice sunny weather. It's in the 50s yesterday here in New England. Um, And that was okay with us. The sun is getting warmer. It's starting to look a little bit more like spring every week, which is awesome. And um, so really nice time with family. Hopefully you had a great Easter as well. If you celebrate and um, just had a great weekend in general. So we are back at it with another case. So let's get into this case here. Um, On episode six of Motherhood is Murder, we will discuss the unsolved case of Molly Bish. Spanning 23 years, this case continues to utilize modern forensic technological advances in the search for her killer. We will also discuss genetic genealogy, what it is, how it can be used to solve cold cases, and what this could mean for families in the future. So this case interested me as last week we covered the uh, Holly Perenin case. And as you might recall, Molly Bish had written to Holly's family following her disappearance, offering her condolences and support. And some seven years later, she then goes missing. So it's an interesting facet. They lived relatively close to each other. And both of these cases had national, made national news and had national attention. So I wanted to cover both of those pretty close to each other. And um, anyway, go from there. So let's get into this case. Molly Bish was born on August 2nd, 1983, the youngest of three children. According to pictures and family accounts, Molly was a sweet, happy person with lots of friends who enjoyed listening to music and was close with her family. Molly loved birthdays, and the family continues to celebrate her birthday each year. Her sister, Heather Bush, has been instrumental in spreading the word about her disappearance and the search for her killer. Heather was 23 when Molly disappeared. Molly also has a brother who is 20 at the time of her disappearance. In 2000, Molly had just started a position as a lifeguard at Cummins Pond in Warren, Massachusetts. Cummins Pond is located in a secluded area surrounded by trees with easy access access to Route 19 and the Mass Pike. At 10 o'clock the morning of June 27th, Molly's mother dropped her off for her eighth day working at the pond. Molly proceeded to an equipment building to get set up for her shift. This would be the last time she was seen alive. Shortly thereafter, a group of parents and children arriving for swim lessons noticed that Molly was not at her post and was nowhere to be found. Her water bottle, beach chair, towel, whistle, police radio, and first aid kit were left behind. A search of the area could not reveal Molly. Warren police were contacted. 
The area including the water were searched, but Molly could not be found. What followed was a horrifying three years for her family looking for Molly and for answers to her disappearance and coming up empty-handed. Molly's case hit news stations as her family, clearly devastated, made pleas for her safe return. The years ticked by without any further information. In June 2003, a hunter on Whiskey Hill in Palmer, Massachusetts, approximately five miles away from Warren, made a grisly discovery. He called to inform police he had found a bathing suit or article of clothing in the woods. He instinctively felt it may relate to the Molly Bish case. When police arrived, they secured the bathing suit and searched the area, finding Molly's remains located nearby. The investigation did not produce any significant suspects in the case, and as the years went by, the family became frustrated. There were lots of unanswered questions, and according to Heather Bish, the family just wanted answers so they could all rest. Heather stated that the family had received conflicting information, including how much DNA was recovered from the scene and if it would be enough to solve the case. In the meantime, the Bish family has been instrumental in getting the Amber Alert system implemented. They also developed a Molly Bish Foundation that provides training, events, and ID kits through the Molly Bish Center at Anna Maria College. They address the issue of missing persons and police response and training. They are also active in familial DNA legislation. According to the foundation, quote, with this initiative, our goal is to promote familial searching FS as an additional search of a DNA profile in a law enforcement DNA database that is conducted after a routine search does not identify any profile matches. Potential to identify close biological relatives of the source of an unknown forensic profile obtained from crime scene evidence, essentially another tool for utilizing a DNA database to generate investigative leads and identify perpetrators of crimes, and just as importantly, to help exonerate wrongfully convicted individuals. And we'll talk about this a little bit further. So, you know, the Molly Bish Foundation, and please support them should you be called to do so, is doing a lot of work in getting this familial DNA out there, right? To get more people trained in it, to be used more, to really, really get this um, moving forward. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, the process for genetic genealogy, because there's a lot of talk about it, I find on podcasts. And I have questions like, okay, I kind of get the idea of what it is. And then I listen to another podcast as a law enforcement podcast, but they were speaking to it on very, uh, technological terms. And I just, it went way over my head. I'm like, can I get it somewhere in the middle? So I understand what you're doing, but it's not super sciencey. So I'm going to hope to cover that in case you also have heard about it and don't know enough. And, um, and I can try to put it in as simple of terms as I know to do. The Bish family also worked with Massachusetts law enforcement to change the language used in reference to cold cases. They felt that the term cold connotated that the case was not actively being worked on. 
they suggested using the term unresolved to reference cold cases. Currently, Massachusetts has adopted this change and cold cases are referred to under the unresolved case unit. So I also think that's interesting because I think when I was younger as a kid, I thought cold meant they weren't really working on it either, or they would sometimes check it out. Like say they got a call or something like, I guess I'll check it out, go in the back room and pull that. But for the most part, I just thought it was like literally cold. Like it was just not really being worked. And these cases are being worked. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in literally one sec right now, actually right now. <laughs> so the Molly Bish case is an active ongoing investigation. Mike McDonald, who was a college student when Molly Bish went missing, has taken over the case investigation. He noted that there are currently 60 cases in the unresolved case unit in Worcester County, with the oldest going back 50 years. So just to let you know, those 60, 60 cases, that's unresolved cases in just one county in Massachusetts. He looks through case files page by page, many of which are becoming worn and need to be transferred over to electronic scans to preserve them. Mike visits Cummings Pond six to eight times a year, walking the trails, grounds, and most notably the trail that led to a cemetery nearby. A white car had been seen in the area of the cemetery around the time of Molly's disappearance. McDonald mentioned that the trail was hidden enough that you would have to know it was there and know the area to use it. It sounds like he believes this is where the offender entered the beach area and kidnapped Molly. McDonald sees science as the answer in this case. What was considered in 2003 as a low quantity of DNA in the case is now considered something that can be worked with more extensively. He feels that looking evidence, looking over evidence collected, he feels that looking over evidence collected, advancements in technology, and tips that come in are the way to resolve this case and find justice for Molly. Heather Bish, Molly's sister, agrees that this case is solvable. She and the family feel that investigators are working hard to find Molly's killer and believes that someone out there knows something about the case. In an episode of Unresolved, Heather is seen looking through a box of items Molly had back in 2000. She rummages through a cassette tape and mementos and wonders what Molly may have been like if she had not been murdered. And although she and the family thoroughly support investigators, she has expressed her disappointment in the DNA process and would like more information on exactly what is and has been done with advancements in DNA as it pertains to the case. She stated, my mom in the past has often compared these feelings that we have right now to being on a roller coaster. You always have hope. Hope is an eternal blessing that I, that I hope I never ran out of, but it's disappointing. This has been a long journey. There's been a lot of errors in Molly's case. The crime scene wasn't preserved. Our local police did not know how to look for a missing person. There was some tunnel vision with Molly's boyfriend initially. There have been lost samples in the past. And right up to learning about Mr. Sumner and his DNA not being in the coded system, there's been a lot of challenges in this case, she said. So let's talk a little bit about what she 
means by Mr. Sumner and the DNA in the system. In January 2021, a development in the case sounded promising. Mr. DA, Joseph Early Jr., announced a breakthrough, and the office began investigating Francis Frank P. Sumner Sr. as a person of interest. New information from an informant led authorities to the convicted rapist and kidnapper who had died in 2016. Investigators traveled to an Ohio prison to collect a DNA sample from Sumner's son, who was currently incarcerated at London Correctional Institution for aggravated robbery. Unfortunately, the DNA test was not a match. DA Joseph Early Jr. stated that working with families is the hardest part of his job. Talking to people in pain who are looking for answers is very difficult. So we'll also talk a little bit about what they mean by the DNA was not a match when we go over the genetic genealogy and that process. So you'll get a little bit more information about what that means. The Bish family continues to look for answers. Heather Bish started a podcast to spread the word about Molly and keep her memory alive. She has been a guest on several podcasts, including Morbid, a top 10 podcast. Heather mentioned that she and the family will not be able to rest until Molly's killer is found, and she often cannot sleep at night while thinking about her sister and the case. Mike McDonald continues to look through case files, consider avenues for DNA, and walks the wood of Cummings Pond, hoping to find something that triggers another trail to pursue. If you or someone you know may have information on the disappearance and murder of Molly Bish, please contact the Bish tip line at 508-453-7575. You can also support the Molly Bish Foundation in their efforts to provide law enforcement and citizens with the tools to make advancements in technology and training. Molly Bish is not the only case that is unresolved in Massachusetts. Cases such as Vanessa Felder, whose body was found in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts in 1981 with blunt force trauma to the face and head and stab wounds in the neck are still unresolved. Heather Bish mentions that she realizes that her position leads to her to a place of privilege so that Molly's case continues to be examined and brought to news and media coverage. There are many cases like Vanessa's that do not receive as much coverage and require further scrutiny. So in this next section, I wanted to discuss a little bit more about genetic genealogy and the process. There's, uh, like I said, there's a lot of discussion and misinformation about this process. So I wanted to explain it as best I can. Um, genetic genealogy uses DNA matches to possibly reveal a suspect using research built out of a family tree, then looking for suspects who have the correct DNA profile. In April, 2018, the method was used to capture Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, and became an entirely new field called investigative genetic genealogy. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it's really hard to say. I'm going to say IgG from now on. Okay. There are currently 250,000 unsolved murders since the 1960s, with 6,000 added each year. So this is nationally. IgG helps solve a backlog of cases combining genetic analysis with genealogical 
research. So here is the five-step process approximately. And I wanted to put it into um, a way that could be kind of easy, more palatable, easier to understand. So step one, the assailant's DNA is collected from crime scene evidence. So DNA is usually taken at crime scene evidence as long as it's able to be. Um, and so it's collected. Step two, DNA, a DNA profile is converted to a format used anonymously in GED match or family tree DNA, the only two sources the law enforcement uses in investigation. Step three, the sample is processed, producing a list of matches to the offender's DNA. These could be close relatives or distant relatives, in some cases, fourth cousins. That's quite distant. It goes back quite a bit. The more DNA shared, the closer the match. So the more DNA shared from the um, offender's DNA or potential offender's DNA um, and the close relative that's in the database, the closer the, that they share, the more DNA they share, the closer that match would be. Genealogists build family trees for the matches using birth certificates, obituaries, wedding anniversaries, and public records. They work back in time, then forward in time to find common ancestry. Step five, promising candidates are ID'd and law enforcement might collect discarded DNA, such as a napkin or a cigarette, and compare that to the crime scene DNA. This either confirms or disproves the findings. So generally in what they're doing is they have a suspect, right? Or they have what they think is a perpetrator, they collect DNA. So they collect DNA from a, a source. They say this DNA most likely is the perpetrators or the offenders DNA, right? They convert that to be able to put it in the format that matches either one of these two systems that they use in law enforcement. That sample is processed and a list of matches is pulled out. So you got a bunch of people who could be potential matches, more or less, depending on how close the DNA matches the assailant or potential offender's DNA. From there, genealogists take those names and they're building family trees. So they're trying to find if they can find an actual person that matches this. What is this? Who is this? What's going on? What is the relationship? They do a lot of that kind of um, that type of historical work. From there, if they have some promising candidates, the law enforcement is going to go out and try to get a discarded DNA sample from that source. So it could be like a napkin they throw away. If they smoke cigarettes, it could be a cigarette they throw away, a cup, like anything that they try to get, they'll take the, the DNA from that. And then the DNA from that promising candidate and the DNA from who they think the assailant or offender is, is compared. And this can either confirm or disprove the findings. So it's either gonna be a match genetically or it's not a match. So we've looked at back at Molly Bish's case. They didn't have to go and find discarded DNA. They knew they had Frank Sumner Sr.'s son in a prison system in Ohio. So they went out there, gathered his DNA there, compared it to the DNA found at the Molly Bish crime scene or where her body was found and discovered it was not a match, meaning there wouldn't have been... Um, 
there wasn't like a shared DNA pattern showed that they were not related. So that meant it was not a match, meaning that if Frank Sumner's son was not a match to the DNA found at the scene, Frank Sumner wouldn't be a match either. It, it was conclusive that he was not a match. So they were able to rule him out as a suspect. So what's really great about this and being able to rule people out as a suspect is like they like we mentioned, um, you know, there's people who are serving time in prison who did not commit the crimes that they were convicted of. And this can help to exonerate people as well. So those cases can be reviewed. And if they're not a match at all, they're able to be exonerated from the crime, considering that they wouldn't have been able to do that crime and their DNA is not matching the profile. So it goes in two directions. It goes into, we can look at past, um, past cases that were questionable as far as DNA, or maybe were circumstantial and see, and then we can go back. We can also go into cold case files and see if there's a way to find someone who matches the offender or perpetrator's DNA using that. So there's a couple of ways you can use this. And of course it's in its infancy. Remember this was used for the first time. And let me just go back in my rep records, April, 2018, 2018. So we are in our infancy, like within five years of, um, so I guess who want to talk about it in stages of human development or in kindergarten here, guys. Okay. So it's like, we still have a lot to do and a lot to learn about how this process could help support these cases. So in addition to all of this, CODIS has been around. CODIS is a combined DNA index system, been used by law enforcement for a while now for crimes, missing person, and when human remains are found. So it's a way to have a storage database for DNA. So in the case of Molly Bish samples, and we just talked about this, but let's just kind of wrap it up here. Samples of DNA from the crime scene were tested against samples of DNA supplied by Frank Sumner Jr., determined not to be a match. Since Frank Sumner Jr. would have had similarities in DNA sequencing to his father, his father, Frank Sumner Sr., was able to be ruled out as a suspect in Molly Bish's case. It is hopeful that DNA may be able to be processed with these technological advances for this case in the future. And hopefully that can be a way to get some answers here. And I'm speculating completely here, but I'm also wondering if DNA samples from David Puglio was ever tested against DNA samples collected in the Molly Bish case. So as you may recall, David Puglio was a person of interest in the Holly Perrainen case, who was murdered seven years prior to Molly's disappearance. Molly had written to the Perenans following the case. Warren, Massachusetts is 17 minutes or about 10 miles of distance from Sturbridge where Holly went missing. It is curious to consider the two cases as possibly being related, although seven years apart. Let's look at the similarities here. Both girls were abducted from a location where they were by themselves. They were more isolated. Both cases could have possibly been opportunistic, although that could be argued in Molly Bish's case because she had been lifeguarding for, this would have been her eighth time. So she could have been watched. That being said, Holly could have been watched too. Anytime she came to Sturbridge, who knows? 
Both girls' bodies were found about five miles away from where they were abducted in a wooded area, both of them found by hunters. So pretty similar. And I don't know, I think in Holly's case, they did not, were not able to determine the cause of death. I don't know about Molly's case. I have not seen anything that said that they were able to determine the cause of death. Um, but that would also be interesting as well. Like, is that where the similarities end or are there some differences? And uh, I don't know, it sounds very interesting. So I would love to hear if David Puglio's DNA or if his familial DNA could be tested against the DNA found at the scene and see if there was a connection there. Even if there's not necessarily a connection to Holly Peranian's case, is there a connection to Molly Bish's case? That would be very interesting. So families and investigators are hopeful that Molly Bish's case can be solved and justice can be attained. Again, if you know anything that might be useful, please call the tip line 508-453-7575. So next week, we will con conclude our April cases with our final case. And the case is the case of Karina Homer, who's a nanny whose body was discovered in a dumpster in the back bay of Boston. So we are coming, we're pulling ourselves out of Western Massachusetts and the woods of Western Massachusetts. And we're going into the city and in, into Boston in a very different situation, similar time frame period. We're working, I think, in the 90s, late 90s here a nanny whose body was found. This is a very gruesome case. So keep this in mind as we go forward into this uh, details of this case is, are pretty explicit. So please don't listen with children. And, um, and so we'll finish with this case and then we'll cap our month off with a discussion of unsolved cases. So I guess that's it for this time around. Um, please, please, please consider supporting the Molly Bish Foundation. If you know anything, please call that tip line. And we hope that we can, if anything, this podcast can do is spread additional word about the fact that this case is still ongoing and still being investigated. It is unresolved. And we hope at some point it says solved on this case. All right. Until next time, be good to one another. Do you love the show? Support Motherhood is Murder on Patreon and get some awesome perks, including a shout out on the show, bonus content, access to a private online community, and more. We appreciate the support so much, and it allows me to offer a case to you each and every week. Motherhood is Murder is researched, written, and produced by me, Valerie Cation. Music by Alexi Action. Check out the show notes for a list of my sources and ways to support your community.